Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Us versus them. Us versus them. These two seemingly innocuous pronouns, us and them, when phrased like this, us versus them in opposition to each other, these two seemingly innocuous pronouns become the two most dangerous words in our vocabulary. Us versus them. At times, the impulse to choose sides feels instinctive to us. While not always intentional or malicious, we tend to gravitate towards others and organize into groups with like-minded people. People who see the world and engage life the way we do. People who share an affinity for the same things we value. People who agree with us and recognize that those who don't agree with us are them. Us versus them. Our propensity towards drawing lines and taking sides is most evident whenever there is a conflict. Whether it's a dispute with our family, spouse, a disagreement with a friend, or an argument with a complete stranger, we reflexively adopt an adversarial posture. As we become increasingly divided, According to political party lines, social and cultural issues, and even theological perspectives, our default tendency is to see the world from an us versus them mentality. And daily, we're barraged by news outlets, radio or online commentators, even commercial advertisers that provoke and challenge us to pick a side. The repeated rally cry is that those who are not for us are against us. But today, as we return to the Gospel of Luke, and as we witness the 12 disciples fall into the same mindset of us versus them, not once, but twice in their encounters with others, Jesus is going to challenge this prevailing attitude. Let us listen carefully. Bible's open now as the sharp line we tend to draw between us versus them is about to be rebuked, erased by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So from Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 49, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we have two 
brief interactions between Jesus and his disciples. Interactions that offer us insight into how we are to engage both Christians and non-Christians. The first incident comes on the heels of a previous conversation, a conversation we looked at last week, a conversation initiated out of an argument between the 12 about who would be the greatest disciple. When all was said and done, who would be the greatest? And you might remember Jesus swiftly interrupted and ended their debate as he reframed greatness in the kingdom of God through the object lesson of a small child standing before them. Greatness in the kingdom of God, Jesus declared, is not exclusive to a select few based on whatever one achieves or accomplishes on their own. No, greatness in the kingdom of God is available to all through being in relationship with, through following Jesus, welcoming and serving others like Christ, particularly those in need. Now you can imagine the awkward pause, the painful silence, on the other side of Jesus humbling his disciples' ego trip. And so seemingly to change the subject, one of the 12, John, blurts out something about an unknown person who's casting out demons in Jesus' name. John, apparently speaking for all the disciples, complains to Jesus how they tried to stop what this individual was doing, but evidently they were unsuccessful. And the disciples' rationale for seeking to shut down the ministry of this man, their rationale for seeking to shut down the ministry of this man is simple. You heard it. Because he is not one of us. Did you hear it? Did you witness John draw that old familiar line between us and them? And let's not miss the irony here. We cannot miss the irony here. After Jesus just invited the 12 to welcome and serve, to welcome and serve, to include others, to include others, particularly the most vulnerable and in need, John and the disciples still remain fixated on drawing boundaries about who should be excluded from participating in the kingdom of God. Notice the disciples are making several assumptions. John and the disciples assume the power of Jesus' name, the exercise of the reign of the kingdom of God, ought to remain within the circle of their discipleship. John and the disciples assume because this person is operating outside of their circle, he must be an imposter, accomplishing deeds in opposition to Jesus. And John and the disciples assume they have the authority and ability to regulate and stop whatever is happening in the name of Jesus. But none of their assumptions are bearing out. So they complain to Jesus. And make no mistake, they fully expect Jesus to be on their side. Um, master, uh, excuse me, uh, someone else, uh, you know, someone else, not from our group, <laughs> not from our group, uh, not from our church, they're doing things in your name. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Well, we tried to stop them in your name because they are not with us. They are not part of our circle. And, uh, well, we haven't been able to do it, so Jesus, you know what? You need to step in and shut them down. Jesus' reply, to put it mildly, is not what they were expecting. As he proclaims, do not stop him. For whoever is not against you 
is for you. Much can be said in a single sentence, as once again, Jesus challenges the assumptions of his disciples. For what's implied in Jesus' response is this unnamed person is not an imposter, is not an adversary. No one could be genuinely casting out demons with the power of Christ unless that person authentically looked to, relied on Jesus through prayer, abiding and communing with the Lord. And of course, this deconstructs another presumption being made by John and his crew, that only those in the immediate company of Jesus were the faithful disciples of Christ. Clearly, there were others who were receptive to the good news of the kingdom of God. Others who, in addition to the twelve, were committed to following Jesus and thus were empowered with his spirit and enabled to act in his name. And that this checks out will be proven only a few verses later, by the way. For when we turn to the next chapter in Luke's gospel, we'll read of Jesus appointing and sending out 70 disciples Followers who have the ability, amongst other things, to cast out evil spirits. But perhaps the most compelling insight is how Jesus reframes the way his disciples ought to perceive the situation before them. What this perceived rogue follower is doing in Christ's name is not like John assumes, is not opposed to the work of the 12 disciples. It's part of the work to which they have been called, reflecting and embodying the love, grace, and truth of the kingdom of God. In fact, don't know if you caught this, what this unnamed individual is accomplishing, casting out demons, is something most recently the 12 disciples had failed to be able to do themselves. Do you remember this? Because it's still in chapter 9. Look just a few verses back. Do you remember? Only moments ago, before their argument with each other about greatness, the disciples found themselves impotent in their efforts to relieve a poor father's demon-plagued son in Jesus' name. Sort of makes you wonder, what then is really behind the assumptions being made by John and the rest? The assumption of exclusivity, the assumption of opposition, the assumption of having more power and control than they actually do. Even if, from their point of view, this person is an outsider, if he or she is being fruitful for the kingdom of God and obviously accomplishing what is good, just, and true in Jesus' name, why would they want to stop that? Could it be jealousy or envy due to the prosperous efforts of others in contrast to their own recent limitations and struggles? Is it perhaps born from a sense of comparison or competition, a sense of entitlement, of wanting their association with Christ, the power of Jesus' name for themselves? The 12 disciples make their appeal here in defense of Jesus' good name. But in truth, we can see in drawing a line between us and them, they are really seeking to defend their own territory, to protect their special relationship with Jesus, 
to attempt to restrict the power of the Spirit to their own wielding. In other words, the disciples created a problem where a problem didn't exist. And it ended up revealing more about them, the growth edges in their relationship with Jesus, their lack of understanding of the character of Christ and the nature of the kingdom of God, it revealed, ended up revealing more about them than it did about the person with whom they took issue and offense. Can we relate to this within the church? Creating problems that don't exist by drawing lines between us and them? As we look around and count so many churches in every city, churches typically not in communication with each other, churches typically not working together and often acting in opposition to each other, how can we deny our tendency to adopt a competitive posture towards each other in serving Jesus rather than together abiding in the collaborative work of the Spirit? Don't we, as modern-day disciples of Jesus, also find ourselves falling into this trap of attempting to divide the body of Christ, criticizing, questioning, excluding others who follow Jesus in a different way than we do? And again, how many churches have been formed just on this argument alone? Baptism, communion, drums, worship style, worship music, robes, no robes, how you dress, how long the service is, how long the service I mean, we could go on and on and on. And in our so-called zeal, and oftentimes the defense of us making these claims and critiquing and questioning, in our defense for so-called purity and truth, in all our attempts to defend Jesus, we, we argue, to defend Jesus, who, by the way, never asks to be defended. Search your Bible. Jesus never asks any of us to defend him. He can do that just fine. As we presumptively draw lines between us and them, are we really so sure? Are we really so confident that where we end up in doing that is closer rather than farther from Christ? Now, I know someone out there, maybe more than one, is thinking, what, what are you saying, Pastor? What are you saying? Is following Jesus then just a free-for-all? Without any theological convictions, without any ethical boundaries, without any moral standards, where anything just goes? Of course not. Of course that's not what I'm saying. Jesus here isn't declaring we should embrace or celebrate the witness and ministry of anyone and everyone who labels themselves as belonging to him. No, elsewhere, not here, but elsewhere, Jesus calls us to be discerning as not everyone who speaks in his name is actually abiding in him and seeking to serve others for the sake of the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, Jesus calls us to carefully evaluate the fruit of others, both the integrity of their lives as well as the outcome of their efforts in his name. Hear that, by the way, church. Results are not the only things in determining who is following Jesus. Character counts too. The witness of the character of Christ. No one is perfect. 
No one is perfect. No individual church on earth is perfect. All in Christ, all of us in Christ, are works in progress. And that means we're subject to ongoing refinement and maturity. No one, no individual church has an absolute monopoly on all the wisdom and ongoing work of God. But at the same time, the character of Christ being reflected through another person is not hard to miss unless we are blinded by our pride and insecurity. Jesus plainly teaches us. He embodies the shape and ethics of the kingdom of God so we can tell the difference between someone who is serving themselves and someone who is seeking to serve others in need. The taste And the flavor of the fruit of the Spirit is distinctly defined for us in the Bible. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The taste and flavor of the fruit of the Spirit is distinctly defined for us so we know exactly what we're looking for. What's truly from the Lord and what is clearly not. Again, notice that John, on behalf of the disciples doesn't accuse this unnamed person of being guilty of doing something wrong, falsely misrepresenting Christ or hurting others in the name of Jesus, let's say. No, the only thing John decries is this person is not one of us. But what Christ reveals is the power of his name. What Christ reveals is the work of the kingdom of God are not limited to anyone's company or control. Think about it this way. If God's grace is not based on personal merit or achievement, if God's grace is not based on our standing before others, then the Spirit will move and work as the Spirit will. Through whomever God's grace comes upon, first bringing them to Jesus and then empowering them to follow Christ. And consider this, if the gospel is being preached in word and deed, and if the oppression and suffering brought by the enemy, the devil, is being expelled, if the freedom and salvation of the kingdom of God is being realized, then we ought to recognize and welcome a friend, a partner in life and ministry, rather than perceive and label an enemy. Now, some time passes after this. Some time passes after this as Jesus, Luke tells us, sets his face, sets his inevitable course towards the city of Jerusalem, heading that way, as Luke hints, to give his life on the cross for hours, to embrace and yet conquer death so we can truly live. Now, we need to keep in mind that those who were traveling with Jesus were many, Far more than just the 12 disciples. As I alluded to earlier, and we see this in the next chapter of Luke, we know there are at least 70 people who were part of his entourage. And a group of people like that, a group of people that large, would overwhelm a small village. Many villages would not immediately have the accommodation or resources for such a large group if they showed up unannounced. Therefore, messengers would be sent out ahead to visit these villages and request the needed hospitality, the food, the drink, the lodging, so forth. And so that was the plan. That was the plan here. That was the local custom. That was the understood proper etiquette. 
But apparently someone forgot to tell the Samaritans. And if you don't recall, there wasn't much love between the Jews and the Samaritans. Despite having ancient familial connections, the animosity between these two groups ran deep. And it's likely on the basis of this long-standing family feud between them, and particularly, as Luke tells us, that Jesus was headed toward Jerusalem. What's the big deal about that? Well, Jerusalem was the, considered the capital of Israel, but the Samaritans refused to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And so on the basis of this long-standing family feud, as well as, well, we know where you're going, and that place is illegitimate, that's probably why this village refused to welcome Jesus and offer any hospitality. But the key here is, is that this affront is not lost on the disciples. And as it soon becomes apparent, the heart of the lessons Jesus has just tried to teach them still haven't quite sunk in yet. Because once again, John pipes up. Um, excuse me. But this time, he's accompanied by his brother James. Together, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are nicknamed in the Gospels. Don't know if you know this or remember it. They were nicknamed in the Gospels the Sons of Thunder. Well, we quickly get an idea why based on what happens next. Because in response to the Samaritan village's rejection of Jesus, James and John go ballistic. They turn to Jesus looking for the launch codes to go nuclear on the whole town. To call down fire from heaven and carpet bomb every man, woman, and child. Once again, the disciples take the bait. Rather than resist the line between us and them that the Samaritans have drawn through their actions, the disciples prove they are more than willing to take sides. Let's go, bro. Let's go. These people have rejected their master. These people have rejected the Messiah. These people have proven they don't belong. These people have proven they are beyond hope. These Samaritans, they deserve to be punished, completely cut off, eradicated. The disciples, notice yet again, bear some egregious sense of offense on behalf of Jesus. And in their presumptive anger, the disciples, they forget examples like Father Abraham, Father Abraham, who long ago once tried to delay the judgment of the Lord, the bringing down of fire from heaven upon a village. No, in their presumptive anger, the disciples are overly anxious to call down the thunder, to exercise divine authority and power in a supposed defense of the kingdom of God. But this move, designed likely to impress Jesus, to prove their loyalty, their greatness, backfires. As Jesus doesn't stop and say, hey, you know, that's a really good idea. Right call there, guys. Really right call. But you're getting a little ahead of yourselves, don't you think? Because raining down fire from heaven is my job, remember? Jesus doesn't stop and condemn this village, telling his followers, oh, don't you worry. One day, those Samaritans will get theirs. I'll see to that. No, Luke keeps it short, sweet, and to the point. Without missing a beat, as James and John want the codes to go nuclear, 
Without missing a beat, Jesus turns. Don't miss this. Jesus turns. He stops whatever he's doing and focuses his undivided attention not on the Samaritans who have rejected him. He focuses his undivided attention on his followers who are misrepresenting him. And in the next moment, Jesus doesn't condemn the village. Jesus rebukes the disciples. Now, to be clear, Jesus isn't condoning the Samaritan village rejecting him when he corrects James and John. That's not the issue. Jesus is addressing a misconception on the part of his disciples. James and John, once again, wrongly perceive that since they were with Jesus, invited and called members of his band of followers, they had the prerogative. They had the right. They had the responsibility to dole out judgment and consequences wherever they saw fit, especially to those who didn't accept Christ. Sadly, tragically, many of us suffer from similar misperceptions, as well as the impulse, as crazy as that sounds, to lash out in the name of Jesus. These days, we are increasingly losing. We're increasingly losing, or even worse, willingly choosing to forsake recognizing and welcoming diverse perspectives, varied experiences, other opinions, both the propagation of fear and our continued championing, championing, championing of the lie that my way is the right way. My way is the only way. Both these things have caused us to remain entrenched in our corners, digging in our heels, refusing to listen or consider anything outside of our political views and ideological certainties. And we're all living the consequences of that, aren't we? And so within our workplaces, within our neighborhoods, within our families, our marriages, even some of our friendships, we find ourselves incapable of having a real conversation anymore. We find ourselves incapable of breaking bread together without lines being drawn, battle positions being taken, and accusations and recriminations then being dispersed. This epidemic of societal polarization has even infected the church. A church, forgive me, that already had a bad reputation for telling the world, Jesus loves and forgives you while acting very unloving and unforgiving towards the world. Especially being very unloving and forgiving towards the world when it rejects Christ. Too many sermons. Too many Bible studies. Too many Christian radio and television programs, blog posts, YouTube videos. Too many berate, threaten, and condemn those who are not living as God intended, those who do not embrace Jesus as the Messiah. If you're not familiar, take an inventory. Notice, look and see. The majority out there is berating, threatening, condemning those who are not living as God intended, calling them out. Those who do not embrace Jesus as the Messiah, they're the enemy. But beloved, if we spend most of our time as Christians being angry and criticizing the world, we will have little energy or time to love the world to which we have been called to serve. How quickly, how quickly we forget 
or forsake how we came to be in the company, the grace of Christ. Not because our house was in order. Not because we got smart one day. Not because we had it all together. Not because we you didn't fall into those traps. We didn't have that kind of stinking thinking going on. Not because we initiated opening the door, inviting Jesus into our lives. Oh, the word of God declares, even while we were yet sinners, God is the one who came down in Christ to us and knocked on our door. Even before the imperfections of our character, and again, we're all still works in progress. Nobody here's got it figured out, myself included, none of us. We're all works in progress, but even before the imperfections of our character, the moral failures of our lives. Somebody raise a hand if you don't have a moral failure. John Timmons, see you. And I'm not going to start following you. <laughs> yeah, none of us can raise our hands with that. Even before the imperfections of our character, the moral failures of our lives, Jesus was baptized into our humanity inviting us to learn from and follow him. And even after all that, even as we rejected Christ, condemning and nailing him to the cross, Jesus didn't die because we took his life. Jesus willingly gave his life for us. Beloved, it is because of how we came to faith. It is because of how we found forgiveness. It is because of how we received salvation in Christ that we have no basis, no presumption of either judgment or condemnation of another person. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done or not done, because grace is not merely how we come into relationship with Jesus. Grace is how we live out our relationship with Christ. Grace is how we reflect and share Jesus with others. And living out of the grace we have been given means loving unconditionally rather than summarily judging. Living out of the grace we have been given means accepting and seeking to understand rather than rejecting and outright condemning. Living out of the grace we have been given means forgiving, even without an apology. Let me repeat that again. Forgiving, even without an apology. Because correct me if I'm wrong, Jesus forgives us long before we make an apology. Jesus doesn't say, I'll forgive you if you say you're sorry. Well, we're saying, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus says, forgive them, Father. They know not what they're doing. So living out of the grace we have been given means forgiving even without an apology, rather than retaliating in kind. Living out of the grace we have been given means to keep, to keep creating, to keep fostering spaces of hospitality and dialogue, to keep doing it, even as such overtures get rejected again and again and again. Living out of the grace we have been given is to continue to try again rather than going to war, rather than cutting off relationship, rather than seeking to punish others. 
Notice the grace that Jesus extends to this Samaritan village. Rather than judge and condemn, Jesus passes the community by and moves on to another village. Jesus models for us what again in this chapter, at the beginning, he previously taught his disciples to do when the gospel we share, when the invitation of the kingdom of God we proclaim isn't welcomed. Jesus shakes the dust off his feet, as he described, as a witness against their rejection of him. But Jesus keeps moving forward, not closing the door on anyone, but leaving open the possibility of the reception of him in the future. And my friends, in following Jesus, we are called to go and do likewise. While we have been commissioned to proclaim in word and deed the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, we are called to speak that truth in love. The love we have received, the love we keep receiving from Jesus. We are called to love, again, not to retaliate or preemptively strike. We are called to be wise and discerning, but not to condemn. Because God alone is the one who knows the heart and mind of everyone. God alone is the one who judges the righteous from the unrighteous. God alone is the one who is setting all things right and true. And God needs no defending or protecting in accomplishing this work. And contrary to what some would teach or lead us to believe, God isn't making all things new by way of a scorched earth policy. I'm, I'm as human as you are. I, I, I'd say this a lot. I, if you ever feel like I'm preaching at you, I apologize and I'm willing to be corrected because I'm not. I'm always sitting in that pew. This is a word for me as much as it is for you. This isn't the word of Chris. This is the word of the Lord. And it humbles me and it, it, it frightens me at times and it ticks me off sometimes. Sometimes I want to say what I want to say. Beloved, I get it. When we're overwhelmed by our fears and confusion, and we all have fears, we all get confused. When we're overwhelmed by our fears and our confusion, when we find ourselves caught up in something unexpected and unpredictable, I like to be in control. I like to plan my life just like you, and I don't like the unexpected. I don't like the unpredictable. But when we find ourselves overwhelmed by our fears and our confusion, when we find ourselves caught up in something unexpected and unpredictable, when things around us have changed, And keep changing. And I'm just having a personal moment here. Gosh, would things stop changing? They just keep changing. Not past tense, continue to change. I don't even want to walk out that door and know what's changed. But when we find ourselves overwhelmed by our fears and our confusion, when we find ourselves caught up in the unexpected and the unpredictable, as things around us have changed and keep changing, and we suddenly feel out of our depth, do you feel out of your depth? It can be tempting, gosh, oh so tempting, to try and make the world smaller. It can momentarily feel good. I'll admit it, it can momentarily feel good to have someone else to blame. It's their fault. That's why I'm afraid. It's their fault. That's why this happened that I didn't expect. It's their fault. That's why it keeps changing. It's them. It's them. It's them. It can feel so good to have someone else to blame. It can be easy, even seem justifiable. Others will tell us we're justified to draw the lines between us and them. 
but both within the church as well as among those who do not share faith in the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down the wall dividing us and them. No matter how we define us and no matter how we define them, in Christ, we discover what we have in common is greater than whatever it is that divides us from each other. Because the most foundational tenet of biblical anthropology remains unchanging. We are all, each of us, made in the image of God. And at the same time, we share the same fundamental problem. We all got problems, but there's one we all share, and that's this, that that image of God within us, universal to us all, has been marred, damaged, by an inherited disconnect, by a self-willed spiritual divorce from our creator, by a cancerous addiction to self that we can only satisfy at the expense of others, by an unhealthy self-absorption that traps us in an impossible quest for perfection or greatness on our own, but just always leaves us with nothing more than guilt or shame. And there is only one solution to the problem that we all, say, we all share. And by the grace of God, we have all been offered the cure to what ails us, the pathway to our freedom, the means of our redemption, the hope that can take us, even today, beyond the world we live in now, to the world we dream about. This is the gospel. This is the good news that what binds and holds us together in all our differences in personality and perspective, in all our conflicting interests, in all our disagreements and arguments, in all our fears and insecurity, in all our guilt and shame, what binds and holds us together is that there is no us or them when it comes to the grace of God. Because God didn't so love us and God didn't so love them. God so loved all the world in giving us his son, Jesus Christ. That is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.